Uh, well, good evening, everybody. My name's Stuart Corbridge. I'm one of the pro-directors here at LSE, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all to the school this evening uh, for the lecture by Dr. Daniel Stedman-Jones on the topic of Masters of the Universe, Hayek, Friedman, and the birth of neoliberal politics. Um, if you would, now is the time, please, to turn off your mobile phones or any other irritating devices. Um, you'll all know, because you've looked at the programme, that we not only have Daniel with us tonight, but we have two respondents, uh, Professor Mark Pennington and Professor Lord Skidelsky. So the plan is that Daniel will speak first for about 20 or perhaps even 30 minutes. Uh, Daniel received his PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, and he currently works as a barrister in London. The first question that I asked him when we were in the green room previously, and he might share the answer with us, is how precisely he found the time to write the book that he's going to be talking about tonight. It's a book that I've read and that I greatly enjoyed. Our first respondent then will be uh, Mark, Professor Pennington, who joins us from King's College London, where he is a professor of public policy and political economy. And Mark's latest book is called Robust Political Economy. Our second respondent is Lord Skidelsky. Um, I think everybody here will know Lord Skidelsky. It gives me great pleasure to say that uh, many of you will know him, of course, as the prize-winning biographer of Lord Keynes. Um, it gives me particular pleasure to say that this is the best biography that I've ever read, uh, the three volumes uh, both because of the subject matter, but also because of the scholarship, the prose, and the articulation. Uh, more recently, Robert, who is an emeritus professor of political economy at the University of Warwick, is the co-author with his son, Edward, I think he's a philosopher, of the book, How Much is Enough?, which is really a meditation on the nature of the good life. So, so much for introductions. Uh, it's a great pleasure to have you all with us tonight, and it's particularly a great pleasure, Daniel, to welcome you to the school. Once we've had your talk, and once we've had the respondents, uh, we'll obviously open it up to question and answers in the usual way. So, uh, welcome. Should I stay here? Or? Wherever you like. Thank you, Stuart, and uh, thank you very much to all of you who've come. I was a bit worried earlier that there may be no one here, given how freezing cold it is. Um, uh, I almost got frostbite on the way over here. Uh, <laughs> um, thank you also to the LSE for hosting this event, and it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, I apologise in advance if anyone heard... <laughs> heard me on the radio earlier, and I hope that there won't be too much repetition. Um, I was on uh, Thinking Aloud earlier this afternoon and had to get across London to come here this evening. So um, I hope I won't uh, repeat myself too much. Um, and thank you very much also to, to Robert and to Mark, uh, who are speaking and responding to uh, my talk tonight. Um, Robert's uh, work is a great example to any historian, and his uh, biography of Keynes is indeed the best biography, I think, that I've read as well. So um, thank you, Robert, for coming. And um, Mark, uh, Mark, Mark's book that came up in 2011 um, is also fascinating for its 
uh, reformulation of uh, classical liberalism um, and the challenges to that perspective. So I'll be very interested to hear what Mark has to say in response to, uh, to my own remarks. Um, when I was lucky enough to get a review just before Christmas um, in the Wall Street Journal from uh, a very eminent man called Kenneth Minogue, um, who is the uh, president, I think, at least was last year, the president of the Montpellerin Society, which is one of the most important uh, neoliberal organizations. Um, and he said in his review that uh, my book was very intelligent, but that it was compromised by too much adjectival attitudinizing. <laughs> So I hope that some of my adjectives and attitudes tonight might provoke a, bit of, uh, a good discussion, uh, both among the, the, my fellow panellists and also uh, from the audience. So the book is about the history of neoliberalism. Um, neoliberalism, in my, uh, in my telling, really, can, I think, can be split uh, crudely but usefully into three different phases. Um, the first would be... Uh, its origins, which were really in the interwar period in the 1930s and 40s, or even starting in the 1920s, in fact. Um, the second period is really the development and the breakthrough of neoliberal ideas and neoliberal thought in America and Britain, uh, primarily in the post-war period, um, culminating in the period uh, in the 1970s, when I suppose you could characterize it as a political breakthrough took place in both those countries. Um, and then the, it, there's a third phase in the history of neoliberalism, uh, I think, which is, the, which is the international spread of those ideas, really, um, out into global institutions like the, the World Bank and the IMF uh, and the WTO uh, and the uh, European Union. And that takes place really after 19... Well, the late 70s, let's say. My book is about that second period. So it's really about the political breakthrough or, or how these ideas, um, which originated in the interwar period, broke through into mainstream politics in both America and Britain. Um, I think it's worth beginning by dis discussing a little bit about what neoliberalism is, um, what my definition of it might be, um, whether there is one definition, um, and about neoliberalism's place in the current political uh, or current intellectual debate. Because I think neoliberalism is a very troubled and elusive concept. Um, it's always been treated on the left, I think, as a sort of hated byword for malevolent globalisation and the imposition of market liberalisation on the developing world. And again, that, that, sort of, that, that focus really is on that third phase, if you like, the period since 1980 or thereabouts where uh, neoliberalism, in a sense, is, is taken to have gone global uh, and dominates uh, the policy agendas of, of, of global institutions, which then impose those policies on the developing world through, uh, through market liberalisation and financial um, straightening policies. Um, on the right, however, and I encountered this quite a lot in some of my interviews, there, there is uh, a sort of ahistorical feeling about neoliberalism, which is that 
uh, neoliberal ideas, the ideas of thinkers like Hayek and Friedman, to the extent that they were influencing uh, the political programs of politicians on the right, so Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan's administrations, uh, at the foremost of that, um, was actually a, a sort of triumphant success, and that Reagan and Thatcher and their their uh, colleagues were, uh, or especially the, the Thatcher and Reagan, were, were the heroes in this process, in a sense, in which they helped the British economy especially, but the American economy too, recover its recover their dynamism or their dynamic um, potential by, for example, um, helping to bring the power of trade unions or labour into line. So you've got these two polar, polar, polar opposites, really, in the way that neoliberalism is talked about, and it's very, very, very seldom talked about in any, with any sort of specificity. Um, and as a historian, of course, it was my, one of my prime uh, motives, really, in getting into the subject, uh, to try and be, be much more critical about what neoliberalism was, what, how it emerged, how it differed from other types of liberalism, and then how it developed historically over time in, in different places. So uh, the transatlantic um, movement, if you like, of ideas between Europe um, and America was, 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 uh, was at the for- forefront of my, of my questions and my, and my research. Um, a, a process which actually began, I don't know if um, any of my former colleagues are here from Demos, but it began when I was working in a think tank called Demos uh, about 10 years ago. Um, and at that point, a, a colleague of mine, Rachel Jupp, and, and I were both thinking of trying to do a project on transatlantic policy transfer, um, something we unfortunately never got round to, but that sort of helped me... Um, uh, gave me a PhD topic, so, um, and here we are. Um, but for the purposes of the book, I've defined neoliberalism as the free market ideology based on individual liberty and limited government that connected human freedom to the actions of the rational, self-interested actor in the competitive marketplace. And I think that 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 definition helps us to just capture what was, what stays consistent in a sense about the ideas, even though they do change from, as, as you would expect from their origins in the 30s and 40s, uh, up to up to the most recent manifestations of neoliberal thought. Um, so that that definition, I hope, helps to sort of give you a sense of the of the basic. Uh, of, of what I take neoliberal ideas to be, and obviously famous examples of neoliberal policies, and particularly the policies that took hold first in the 60s and 70s, are uh, monetarism, and which was obviously famously um, uh, advocated by Milton Friedman, who's a, the, one of the central characters in the book, and deregulation, which was similarly pushed by um, George Stigler, uh, also of uh, of the of Chicago University and of the, the Chicago School, so those are two two good examples about which I'll I'll say a little bit more uh, shortly. Um, so, the, uh, if one takes a historical perspective on what neoliberalism is, it's more than one thing. Is the first thing to say. So, despite the um, 
the tendency, if you like, to use it uh, in journalism and in current debate and in social scientific and political scientific analysis as a sort of understood category. Um, it's it's very one has to be one has to be specific and and, and break down the different. Uh, types of neoliberalism and how it changes over time. So if I now move to the argument of the book, the, the argument really begins by saying that, the, that neoliberal ideas uh, predominantly originated in, in the interwar period in Europe. There were American thinkers um, who were important in the earlier period. Certainly there was the first uh, Chicago school economists Especially, Frank, uh, especially Henry Simons, not, not Frank Knight, although Frank Knight was important too. Um, and similarly, there was the American journalist Walter Lippmann, who was a very important early uh, influence on, on these early debates. But most of the early neoliberals, I think it's fair to say, were European, and they were responding to European problems. There were people like Friedrich Hayek, as we've mentioned, um, Ludwig von Mises... Um, another Austrian, and Karl Popper, a third Austrian emigre. Um, although Popper's an interesting figure, but I can say a bit about that in, in a minute. Um, so there were some Austrians, and then there were people, there were people based in Germany, um, particularly members of the Freiburg School, Wilhelm Ropka, uh, Volta Yukon, and Alexander Rusto. Uh, all of whom were very important in this early period. And similarly in France, there were intellectuals like Raymond Aron and Louis Rougier and Jacques Ruff. Um, and then finally here in the LSE, there was a, a, a large contingent of uh, what Mark might call classical liberals, but, I, but also, I think, at this point, neoliberal, neoliberal uh, thinkers um, led by Lionel Robbins, um, and, of course, joined by Hayek and Popper later in the 40s as well. So these early European neoliberals were responding, I think, quite, quite clearly to European problems, the fear of the spread of totalitarianism of both the left and the right, of course. They'd fled, a lot of them, from Nazi Germany, but also there was a deep fear of... of communist totalitarianism and indeed the implications of the spread of communism. Uh, so that was the first big driver behind uh, early neoliberal thinking. The second big driver, I think, was that, and why it, in fact, became neoliberalism, was that there was a, the, the early neoliberals, Hayek uh, et al., all considered themselves, in a sense, to be trying to traverse a middle way between two types of liberalism, which they saw, thought had failed in different ways. The first of those was, uh, was laissez-faire liberalism, um, the, the sort of liberalism that saw uh, a very little role for the state except to defend private property. Uh, it was known as the, the night watchman state. Um, on the one hand, uh, and then on the other hand, the more activist forms of liberal liberal thought, which had become to uh, become very important politically too in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and that was a sort of activist liberalism of, of Lloyd George, of Herbert Henry Asquith and the early Edwardian liberal governments and the or original uh, moves towards the development of the welfare state. Um, and also 
of course, in America, Franklin Roosevelt, well, progressivism, but then most importantly, Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal in the 1930s. So the early, the early neoliberals saw themselves as, in a sense, trying to get back to uh, a classical tradition, um, which in their, in their minds went back to the 18th century. And classical liberal thinkers like uh, uh, Locke, Hume, and most importantly of all, uh, Adam Smith. So it's important to note that that was the early origins of neoliberal thought. And at that point, certainly throughout the 1930s and 1940s, and looking at the work of people like Hayek and um, Popper, which I, I look at quite closely in the first chapter of the book, they saw no, at that point no conflict necessarily with a basic welfare state. Now, it's debatable how much or how expansive that was to be. But certainly it's interesting to note that, that with the backdrop of the European problems of depression and war of the 1930s and 40s, um, certainly Hayek uh, agreed, in a sense, that there was a need for a social safety net. It was one of the arguments and the debates he had with Keynes, actually, was Keynes criticised the road to serfdom uh, for, for this... Uh, well, he said, where do you draw the line... Um, where, does, where, do you, where does Hayek draw the line in terms of how much state intervention one might need? Because Hayek does acknowledge that you need to have some. So it's important that in this early period there was not necessarily an incompatibility between the welfare state and, the free ent- and what they saw as the free enterprise system. Secondly, uh, an, a very important early emphasis of all, of all these neoliberal thinkers was uh, an emphasis on the best way to secure competition in the marketplace uh, and an emphasis at that point on anti-monopolistic uh, <coughs> policies which were primarily seen to originate in market failure. Um, this, this begins to change, I think, as the locus of neoliberalism, I think, moves in the post-war period from Europe to America. Um, before that process happens, it's just worth me taking a couple of minutes to describe what Hayek's intellectual strategy was, because Hayek had a very clear sense of what he was trying to do in the 1940s, and it's not all about what Hayek does, but at that point it is very important to focus on, on what his intellectual strategy was, because it, it really did uh, set the parameters, in a sense, for much of what came later. And Hayek in the 40s certainly looked uh, and consciously sought to emulate uh, early socialist success, uh, early 20th century socialist success, again with um, the Fabians and the Webbs and the establishment of the LSE and the influence of the left and particular uh, socialists, not just here but in America too, uh, with the formation of think tanks, the first think tanks first wave of think tanks, the Brookings Institution in America, but most importantly the Fabian Society uh, here. And what Hayek took from this um, development, if you like, was that the, uh, the left had been incredibly successful by influencing intellectual elites that through, uh, through influencing the way that intellectuals discuss and talk about ideas and about politics, then you do eventually have 
uh, a political effect and a political success. And that was evidenced in the successes of the Liberals and the Labour Party in the 40s and, of course, Roosevelt in America. Um, Hayek propounded his strategy, or he, he, he identified that this issue, if you like, and uh, aimed to change, uh, to, well, advocated that neoliberal thinking do the same in an article called The Intellectuals and Socialism, uh, which was a, a very important piece which really set out this strategy. And his point was if you could, if you could influence and change intellectual thought, by which he, he, he cast the net wide. It was, it was intellectuals across the piece, really. If you could influence the way that they discuss things and, and influence uh, the way that they frame problems, then eventually you would have political success. Um, so that was the, the one dimension of, of, of his strategy. The other was to set up the Montpellerin Society, which was to bring together intellectuals, journalists, economists, philosophers from across Europe and America and wherever really they were located and bring them together to try to discuss how you could push neoliberal thinking forward and how you could spread it in the various pockets in which it was located around the world. So that intellectual strategy... I think is what then actually comes to fruition in post-war United States and also Britain, um, it, or at least it, 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 it's most successful in those two countries. And bef- as a sort of before, before I talk about the uh, post-war American, I suppose American-centric or American-dominated um, neoliberal thinking of the Chicago School and the Virginia School. It's just, important, it's just worth noting that those, that, that those early neoliberal ideas really uh, emerged in, in their own political project, um, where perhaps the second, uh, more American-dominated set of ideas reached its uh, apogee under Thatcher, that, that those early neoliberal ideas really came to fruition politically in post-war Germany and the uh, policies of Ludwig Erhardt the Chancellor, uh, sorry, the Finance Minister to Conrad Adenauer, who was the Chancellor. And in the 1950s, you get actually quite a consensus in German politics between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats who come together around uh, an idea about uh, a competitive market economy that is also combined with, uh, with a welfare state. So if we moved into the post-war period, I think that, as I say, the, loc- the locus of neoliberal activity and neoliberal thinking moves, I think, from, Euro- from pre- being predominantly European-based to being uh, pushed forward in America. And it is really thinkers like Milton Friedman, George Stigler, and James Buchanan and Gordon Tullock, who are the leaders of the, of the Virginia School, who uh, begin to focus much more purely on market-based solutions to social and economic policy. There is a process in, in, uh, which is known perhaps slightly disparagingly as economics imperialism, um, which is associated with the Chicago School. And that the idea of economics imperialism was just simply that market-based analysis, methodological individualism, which had been elaborated by Milton Friedman in the early 1950s, gets extended across into different areas that had never been uh, exposed or, or, or analysed really within, within a market framework. So you get uh, analysis of, of new areas like crime and the family um, and 
uh, regulation, obviously. Um, and these, these new areas become um, susceptible, really, to market analysis in the Chicago School um, approach. And I think that this process um, uh, is important because it's less encumbered by a sense in which the welfare state needs to be combined. Um, it's, not that, it's not that these uh, Chicago thinkers did not care at, at all about problems of poverty or problems of education or, uh, or health care. It's just that they, they thought that, that the market could deliver more efficient and more effective alternative uh, policy outcomes in those areas. Um, but I think that, 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 again, it's important to, to note the backdrop, really, to, the, to this, changing, uh, this changing neoliberal uh, thinking where obviously in the interwar period you had the, you had the backdrop of fascism, communism, depression, the Second World War. In the post-war period you have the Cold War and you have the, um, uh, you have the rising prosperity uh, of, the post-war boom, of the post-war boom. So I think it's, that's, that's an, important, an importantly different atmosphere in which this thinking is taking place. But I think one of the effects of the Chicago and Virginia, Virginia School approach, I should say with the Virginia School approach, the idea was to, to, to look at uh, government, public administration, uh, bureaucracies, and apply, again, uh, a, a market-based analysis. Um, and I know that's something I'm sure Mark will, will, will talk about. Um, but the point, really, about this emphasis on market market-based solutions to, in, in, in policy, I think, is that you get an emerging clarity for, in political terms uh, of the neoliberal message. And I think that that's very important in the, in the 60s and 70s because it becomes uh, much more digestible and, and easily communicated. And then, of course, the, the sort of the emblematic policies, if you like, of monetarism uh, and deregulation are there and are... are communicated and known about well before the crises of the 1970s allowed, their, um, allowed policymakers to really take them up. <coughs> so I think that um, this is all uh, obviously quite broad brush, um, but I think that there, is this, that there is this shift and it is noticeable um, and there is a difference uh, in the development of, of neoliberal thinking. But I think it still does remain and retain uh, something distinctive, distinctively neoliberal about it. Um, and we can come back to our uh, opening definition. I think that there is a, 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 an emphasis on the importance of um, the, act, the, the actions of um, consumers in the marketplace as being some, some, somehow connected or t- t- being an expression, really, of human freedom. Um, Ludwig von Mises actually makes this uh, case most starkly uh, in the 40s, I think, that in the, in the marketplace you see people making their uh, honest choices, if you like, and actually, um, or James Buchanan put it another way and, and said that, um, you know, public choice th- theory of which he was the, the key proponent, was politics without romance. So it's the idea that if you focus on people's real actions and consumption, actually, um, then you, you get closer to what people really want and you get closer to productive outcomes. 
Um, that obviously can be debated, but I think that's what that was the the, the sort of emphasis. Um, in the 70s, I think you have uh, a different process, and I, I, I'm not going to talk about it for too long because, of course, um, you know, in a sense, it's another book. What, why did the left break down, and uh, why did lib- what was the crisis of liberalism? And there's a huge literature on that, of course, as well. But I think, again, using broad brush terms, in the 70s, you do have a crisis of the dominant policy paradigms. Keynesian demand management was no longer working. You have, the emer- you have stagflation, uh, which is low or no growth combined with inflation. Um, and you really do get a crisis, uh, well, multiple crises, I suppose, in, in the different uh, dominant approaches among policymakers in both America and Britain. And monetarism and deregulation were two of the, big, the, the obvious examples that could be drawn on by policymakers. So that leads, I suppose, to my, to my, uh, to my third major thought about for, arising out of the book's argument, which is that I think it's interesting to note that in the 1970s, it's not actually in the first place policymakers on the, on the, in the Republican Party or the Conservative Party that draw on neoliberal ideas and neoliberal policies first. It's actually the um, Carter administration and the Callaghan government. Um, one can obviously talk about how, how reluctant this was, but it's certainly true that in both cases Callaghan begins uh, to adopt at least a, a slightly tighter approach to public spending and begins to adopt uh, new uh, targets uh, around inflation uh, rather than full employment and of course makes his, his, disavow- his, makes his famous speech at the Labour Party conference in 1976 disavowing um, Keynesian demand management and explaining what Friedman had been saying for a long time and what his advisor Peter Jay uh, also thought which was that Keynesian demand management did could lead to uh, rising inflation. And similarly, in America, you get Jimmy Carter, who is uh, actually one of the uh, earliest, earlier advocates of deregulation, first in the uh, airline industry and the transport sector, and even some initial steps in, into financial deregulation. And then, of course, Carter um, appoints Paul Volcker to the... Um, uh, to, to be the chair of the Federal Reserve, and um, Paul Volcker does then be, uh, consciously adopt um, a policy of high interest rates to try and bring up inflation under control, and is uh, reappointed by Reagan in 1983. So again, you have a sort of uh, initial breakthrough on the on the left and the right, and I don't think it's so much that the left was suddenly converted. It's more just that there was a real need to look around for new policies because there were crises and problems that were that that. Uh, the existing policy mechanisms didn't seem capable of solving. So that's that's uh, what I want to say really about the book's argument um, for now. Obviously, I hope we can have um, more discussion uh, as as the next hour progresses. But I'll, I'll just leave you um, perhaps with the following thought, um, which is: I wonder whether now um, is is a moment, or post-2008, shall we say, is a moment like the 1970s, or whether, in fact, um, neoliberalism or the neoliberal era, I suppose, endures. Um, Obviously, uh, Ed Miliband made a a, a speech um, the year before last suggesting that he thought it was over. 
Um, but we do see a lot of evidence, actually, in both America and Britain um, of the endurance of neoliberal policy ideas, or at least policy influences, um, certainly in terms of market-based approaches to health and education and other public services, but also in the uh, continuing emphasis of, on both sides of the Atlantic on, um, on keeping inflation under control and also using... Um, quantitative easing and monetary policy mechanisms to try to cope um, with the crisis, which obviously, uh, I'm sure Robert can can talk about too, um, have their Keynesian origins as well. Um, And perhaps a a second final thought is, as we gear up for Cameron's uh, speech on Europe on Friday, um, or or we worry about it, um, it's, it's very interesting to note that neoliberal policies and neoliberal thinkers were very um, uh, chari- well they were characterised by their cosmopolitan nature and I think that one of the reasons for the successes of neoliberal thinking um, even whether we like it or whether we hate it is uh, that it was very much in tune with many of the global economic changes that have, uh, that have been happening in the last 30 years um, of course, there have been many victims of those changes too, but um, and it'll be interesting going forward to see whether Cameron's uh, approach to EU re- re- renegotiation, in fact, to achieve certain central neoliberal tenets, such as the, the holy grail of flexible labour markets, it'll be interesting to see whether that approach is right or whether it works or whether, in fact, there's an alternative approach to European uh, intra governmental cooperation so I'll leave it there for now and uh, very much looking forward to hearing from Mark Okay. good evening everybody Um, I'm going to be disagreeing with quite a few of the things that are in Daniel's book Um, But I should say at the outset that if you haven't read the book already, I strongly recommend that you do read it, because I think it's a very, very good book, um, and it really is, it's really worth the read. Now, as I see it, the book has got three objectives. The first is to try to understand the historical circumstances and some of the intellectual personalities that gave rise to what has become rather annoyingly, in my point of view, come to be known as neoliberal politics. The second objective is to provide a critical commentary on some of the ideas that constitute that (coughs) neoliberal politics. And thirdly, I think in the conclusion of Daniel's book, there's an attempt to try to understand our contemporary economic predicament, the contemporary economic crisis, as arriving in some sense, as arising in some sense, from the dominance of neoliberal politics for the last 30 years. Now, I think with the first of these objectives, looking at the personalities and events that gave rise to neoliberalism as we know it, I think this book is a great success. One gets a real sense of the events and the personalities involved. In particular, I like the honest portrayal of the crisis of Keynesian social democracy that many people perceived in the 1970s the stagflation period that Daniel just mentioned. I think this comes in stark contrast 
to what I would describe as the Krugmanite revisionism, which depicts the 1970s as a kind of land of milk and honey, which was progressing to utopia, if only Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan hadn't popped up somehow out of nowhere to ruin the party. Now, in terms of personalities, there are some very interesting accounts of the disputes between various members of the Mumpelleran society with regard to the case for markets and how, ben- how best to advance those arguments. I think the book is very strong in that regard. One also gets a sense of how dependent the Mumpelleran society was, in particular, on the personalities of Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek. And also how, in many ways, this organization and the ideas that it advanced benefited from the good fortune of being in the right place at the right time. Whether right or wrong, whether you agree with their ideas or whether you disagree with their ideas, you get the profound sense from reading Daniel's book that Friedman, Hayek, and other people in the Mont Pelerin society were motivated by the power of ideas. They believed that liberty, as well as economic performance, was under threat and that something needed to be done about it. They were motivated by that belief, however mistaken you think that belief may have been. And in that regard, I'd like to commend Daniel's book in comparison to some other contributions which have come out in recent years in this area. We've had, for example, the Marxist account presented in David Harvey's book, A Brief History of Neoliberalism, which depicts the emergence or the re-emergence of market liberal thinking in the post-war period as little more than a front for organized finance capital. We've also had the non-too-subtle conspiracy theory characterized by the Phil Murawski volume, The Road to Mont Pelerin, which attempts to depict Friedman and Hayek as intellectuals for hire. Compared to those books, I think this book is a paragon of intellectual honesty, and it's to be commended as such. I think when we turn to the other purposes of Daniel's book, though, I would judge it to be, and I hope I'm not sounding too harsh here, something of a failure. It wants to offer a critical commentary on neoliberal ideas, but in my view, it never really engages with the content of these ideas on other than a superficial level. Now, let me give you a couple of examples to illustrate the argument here. We're told in Chapter 3 that neoliberals such as Friedman and Hayek were predominantly concerned with issues of economic efficiency and didn't pay any attention to the moral dimension in social life. Now, reading this, I found this to be a very strange claim. Hayek wrote a lot of books and a lot of rather big books. One of them, Law, Legislation and Liberty, was a book specifically which addressed the question of what kind of moral framework is compatible with an open society or great society as he depicted it, which in large measure reflects the interactions between many, many different actors who are basically unknown to one another in any personal sense. You may not agree with Hayek's analysis of what that moral framework should be, but to say that the moral dimension gets no attention, I think, is a dubious claim to make. Another example, on page 333 of the book, we're told that neoliberals placed too much faith in the market because of an uncritical adherence to neoclassical general equilibrium theory 
and the rational expectations hypothesis. You would never know from reading this part of the book that Hayek was perhaps the biggest critic of this very sort of reasoning and derived much of his support for market institutions precisely from a rejection of the general equilibrium framework of neoclassical economics. This is completely missed in Daniel's account of what Hayek's ideas actually are. Now, it may be that what Daniel really aims to criticize here is not so much the intellectual substance of neoliberal ideas, but the way they've been interpreted and implemented by politicians, such as those involved in the Thatcher government throughout the 1980s. This, from my point of view, is one of the slight failings of the book. It's never really clear whether what Daniel is doing is challenging the ideas of Friedman and Hayek themselves or whether he's challenging the way they were interpreted and implemented by politicians such as Margaret Thatcher or Ronald Reagan. That, to my mind, isn't clear from reading the book. Now, my own view would be that even as an account of neoliberal politicians, the analysis is, if I may say, a little bit flaky. Whether you agree with them or otherwise, I think even a cursory listen to some of Margaret Thatcher's speeches from the 1980s reveals that the moral argument for relying on markets was always a key aspect of the arguments that that government actually made. It wasn't just about economic efficiency. It was an argument, whether you liked it or otherwise, about individual liberty. Likewise, if you look at some of the policy areas where privatization measures, for example, were introduced, it's a stretch to claim that general equilibrium theorizing was behind these kind of policy measures. If you look at the privatization of utilities in the UK and the regulatory structures which were introduced in this area, they weren't informed by general equilibrium theory at all. They were informed in large part by a Schumpeterian understanding of how a competitive economic system actually operates. I think, though, from my point of view, the biggest failing or the biggest weakness of the book relates to its third objective, and this comes in the concluding chapters, where there's an attempt to locate today's economic crisis in the dominance of neoliberal policies. Now, I want to dwell on this aspect for the remainder of my remarks because this is the part of the book that I take the greatest issue with. Like many others, Daniel is of the view that over the last 30 years we've experienced a period where virtually all policy areas have seen the attempt to implement some kind of free market economic doctrine into the policy areas concerned. Now, Daniel has a phrase for this. He calls it faith-based public policy. The faith in question being the unquestioned belief that whenever and wherever possible, we should introduce market-type mechanisms because markets always deliver the goods. Now, if I may say, I believe the view that he puts forward in this context is what I would describe as guilty of faith-based historical analysis. The faith being that if Thatcher, Reagan, the Bushes and Blair spoke about deregulation and rolling back the frontiers of the state, that this must actually have happened without any regard to the actual empirical evidence about whether these policies were actually put into practice. 
Now, let me be clear what I'm suggesting here. I'm not suggesting that market liberal ideas have had no impact in the last 30 years. That would be an absurd claim to make. Privatization of state-owned industries, flexible labor markets, policies like that have been influenced by those kind of themes. What I would claim is that the impact of these ideas in the broader sphere of public policy in the welfare state has been vastly exaggerated. And I think Daniel's book contributes to that exaggeration. Let me give you a few examples. We're told on page 268 that in healthcare in the UK, we have seen a wholly inappropriate importation of free markets into the provision of public services. Now, I want to set aside whether you think markets are appropriate in healthcare or not and just leave you with the question of has this actually happened? If we look in the United States, all of the policy movements over the last 20 or 30 years have actually been away from free market solutions in healthcare towards greater regulation of markets, not only under Obama, but also under George Bush. If we look in Britain, 30 years of neoliberalism has left us with a health service which is the least market-oriented of any of the European healthcare systems, the least market-oriented of any of those systems, and considerably less market-oriented than the systems in France and Germany. What about regulation? Another area that people talk about. Well, I was fortunate enough to study a PhD here at the LSE in the mid-90s. I was unfortunate enough, you might say, to choose as my topic the political economy of land use regulation or town and country planning, um, if you prefer. (laughs) As punishment for my various sins, um, I had to read a whole catalogue of books which were examples of faith-based historical analysis. Books which claimed that effectively Mrs. Thatcher had destroyed the town and country planning system, that the market was now firmly in charge of land use allocation in the UK. Now, I didn't believe this, so I thought I'd actually look up the data. What did I find? I found that in the period that Mrs. Thatcher was in office, the level of expenditure on town and country planning regulation in real terms increased by 40%, and that the designated area of Greenbelt land tripled. If we go across the Atlantic, we see a similar picture with regard to broader economic and social regulation in the United States. George Washington University publishes an annual account of the level of regulatory expenditure in the United States. It shows that between 1980 and 2010, real expenditure on economic and social regulation tripled well in advance of the rate of economic growth in the United States as a whole. Finally, let's consider financial regulation. Daniel's book takes the standard line that has dominated a lot of journalistic commentary following the economic crisis in 2008. That's the line that we've seen over the last 30 years, massive financial deregulation, and that it's that financial deregulation that lies behind the recent economic crisis and the problems we're still trying to extricate ourselves from. In my view, this is another example of faith-based historical analysis. Just about the only example of deregulation that this kind of thesis points to is the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act in the United States. Without any attempt to actually specify how precisely 
the repeal of that act created the economic crisis. In the British context, there's actually been very little in the way of financial deregulation. Pensions and insurance are far more regulated than they were in the 1980s. One area where there has been some deregulation is in the area of securities, where we had the Big Bang in 1986. But even then, all that was happening was a replacement of a private club-based form of regulation operated out of the City of London with a government-sponsored form of regulation now run by the Financial Standards Authority. This was not deregulation. It was changing the locus of who actually engages in the regulation. In the U.S. context, the economists Peter Becky and Stephen Horvitz have conducted an analysis of financial regulation over the last 20 years. They find that for every piece of financial deregulation that took place, there were four further pieces of legislation which increased the overall level of regulation. Now, if you're skeptical of these kind of claims, I recommend that you read the excellent volume by Jeffrey Friedman and Vladimir Krauss, Engineering the Financial Crisis, which documents how one of those regulatory changes, in particular the adoption of the Basel Accords, was actually one of the major causes underlying the recent economic crisis, encouraging the securitization of risky mortgages in U.S. banks. Okay, so in my view, to depict the last 30 years as one of untrammeled deregulation is highly inaccurate. If we want to gain a better understanding of the successes and the failures of neoliberal politics, we need an analytical history that can account both for the areas where deregulation has occurred and for those areas where deregulation and privatization manifestly have not occurred. We need an account which can look at the coalitions of interests and ideas that have favored deregulation and neoliberalism in some areas, but which have proved very resistant to that process in other areas. There's a good deal to enjoy and to praise in Daniel's book. But in my view, the analytical history that I've just described has yet to be written. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Mark. Um, our next respondent is uh, Robert Skidelsky, Lord Skidelsky. I'm uh, making the dangerous experiment of using my iPad, um, which tends to have a mind of its own. Um, I'm not going to do a review of Daniel's book. Um, I think uh, he can pr probably defend himself very effectively against um, some of the criticisms, which I, I don't think were merited. Um, but I first have to get some text in front of me, and then I'll be able to um, get on with what I want to say. Of course, the, the other problem is that the battery is very low. <laughs> and, um, and for some reason, it doesn't want to come on. Now, <laughs> I think we're there, or there for a bit. Um, now, why have I got a blank page? Okay. Um, 
I think what uh, Daniel's book does is uh, it does describe the march of neoliberalism through the institutions. I mean, as he said, starting in the, in the in roots in the 30s, then through the universities, think tanks, and uh, higher journalism, uh, the United States and, and, uh, and Britain in the 1960s through to the 1980s. And, I mean, I think the story is well known in general outline, but um, he's brought uh, uh, wonderful archival detail, not least to the Battle of the Economists, and I love reading about that kind of stuff, Harry Johnson and Hayek and, you know, how they all sort of, you know, all their letters have survived, or a lot of them, and they simply, um, they, 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 they fight each other. The Battle of the Economists is fascinating. If you think that economists are sort of well-mannered and uh, uh, reasonable, um, well-balanced per- people, you should read some of those things, how they accuse each other of betrayal. Of, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a wonderful story, and it's, 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 very well, it's very well told. And it hasn't been told really in that detail before. But I, I, I I think I, I want to ask some, a question arising from it. And this isn't, uh, this isn't a criticism of the book, but it's just what I'm interested in and what I take out of the book, and it's something I'm concerned with. And that is, what is the role of ideas in historical explanation? Uh, broadly speaking, do ideas furnish motives for action um, or are only rationalizations? for actions are decided on different grounds. Now, it depends which set of actors you ask that question to. I agree with what Mark said. I mean, I think thinkers obviously must believe in the importance of ideas. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't be thinkers, really. Um, I mean, what, what else is there? So, but that, 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 uh, that doesn't mean that politicians do. And, and, and politicians may simply use ideas when they feel the need for them without going into them very, very uh, deeply. And, and you find that politicians very rarely come into politics with a set of ideas which they um, uh, deem it their task um, to um, up- apply or in, in their political lives. It's very rarely that. They're very rather amorphous. What ideas did Tony Blair come into politics with? <laughs> I mean, you may say he's, uh, you know, he's an easy target, but he was uh, the leader of the Labour Party, prime minister for, you know, 10 years, and one of the the greatest vote winners, in fact, the greatest vote winner that Labour's ever had. When you actually look at what his ideas were, vaguely modernising, a sort of slight, you know, bit of Christian socialism, which he picked up in the intervals of playing rock music at Cambridge and things like that. Christian communitarianism, not socialism. So I think, I think the question is, is then very, um, then, uh, very uh, important. Now, a related question. Um, do we agree with Keynes that ideas are more important than vested interests? This is a famous remark he made at the end of the general theory. Or to put it another way, what is the relationships between ideas and the structures of power? Which is a, a question course, was sent, that question was central to Marx. I was having lunch today with an economist uh, who suggested that ideas are like clothes in a cupboard, um, that nearly all the ideas needed for political action had already been thought of. They'd been there for thousands of years, actually, and, and, and they're simply taken out and worn as the situation, um, as the situation when they're needed. Is that, is that the correct question? Now, to zoom in on... 
uh, Stedman Jones's question, what caused the victory of neoliberalism over the then reigning Keynesian orthodoxy? Now, there was a victory. There was a shift. I mean, it's rubbish to say that, you know, he got it wrong because the shift wasn't 100%. And, of course, we accept that. But there was a shift. Um, and and I, I think anyone who was a Keynesian in the 1960s understands that there was a change of mood, um, both in, 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 in thinking about the economy and in thinking about the role of the state, the two, of course, being linked. So why, 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 why was that? Um, there, I think there are three pointers. Uh, otherwise, you know, it's, it's a very complex question. It is. A, one, um, one can debate the question of the shift on a purely intellectual plane. That is to locate the story in the battle of the universities over the causes of inflation and unemployment. In shorthand, Keynes versus Friedman. One could discuss it in those terms and then say, well, Friedman got the better of the argument, perhaps, or Keynes got the better of the argument, or uh, he was dead, but his followers did. Um, there's a closely related debate that goes on at that time, which is a political economy debate about the size and role of the state, which pits, pits Hayek and also Popper um, and other Austrians uh, against the sort of socialists and social democrats, which is itself a, a, a reflex of a much older debate in the 1930s about the role of planning. So there are these sort of debates going on, and there are thinkers who are involved in them. But, but, but I mean, and you can tell the story in that, in, that, in that form. But even from this restricted perspective, you can see a relationship between this battle and events in the real world. And that is the problem for policy caused by the simultaneous rise of inflation and unemployment. What does the government do about it? You know, what's the policy when these two things, stagflation, seem to be going on? And the Keynesians didn't seem to have an answer at that time. I mean, uh, what they could promise was full employment, but only at the cost of rising inflation. Um, and Milton Friedman broke through, really. He said inflation is a monetary phenomenon. You can control it by controlling the money supply later. That, that varied, but that was the, the basic core message. And what about unemployment? Well, uh, the problem there is that the unions are pricing their members out of work. So if you weaken the unions, then, of course, you actually um, get very rapidly back to your natural rate of unemployment. So it was a policy for the Thatcher government. Now, the risk was, the risk was, that um, the electorate wouldn't bear the rise, temporary rise in unemployment. And that was a risk, and they were conscious of taking that risk. But they thought that, you know, all the alternatives were worse, that Britain had, was becoming ungovernable, and so they took it. Well, I mean, th so even when you're talking about the battle of ideas and which particular shirt is being pulled out of the cupboard at any particular time, you do have reference to um, uh, uh, problems in the real world. It, it's, it's not just um, taking place in the mind of economists. Because if it's only taking place in the mind of economists, you have a problem to explain why some ideas come out better than others at different times. It's not a matter of truth. There's no truth in this. These are, these are, these are all um, intimately intertwined with politics. So that's one, set of, that's one set of ways you can start thinking about the relationship. And the other, the other is um, um, 
the other, the other change is brings in Marx. I think Marx is due for a big revival. <laughs> I don't think he was right in his solutions, but he was a fantastically perceptive analyst of the capitalist system, and particularly the role of power in that system. As soon as you bring in low, low batteries, oh dear, dismiss. <laughs> um, now, as soon as, you, as soon as you bring in the trade unions as part, or, or, the, or the elimination or, or weakening of the trade unions as part of the conquest of inflation, you get a Marxist analysis. It, 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 it follows very, very readily um, because what uh, people were arguing at the time was that full employment, guaranteed full employment, had actually caused the share of wages in the national income to rise at the expense of profits. Therefore, how do you restore the profit share? You actually recreate the reserve army of the unemployed and globalize and, of course, legal restraints on the position of the unions are part of that. Now, what's wrong with that explanation? I, mean, I think it's the correct explanation. You may say the data doesn't... Well, if you, you can do data on profit shares and wages shares, but that was a very, very large perception. And so I think this is a way of, of looking at globalization, uh, both of Thatcherism and of the globalization, as a project to restore the profit rate. It's only, it seems to me that that's the simplest way of analyzing um, the, the, the reason these, a certain set of ideas became powerful in the 1970s, 1980s, and, and 1990s. Um, I, I, never, you know, I never thought I would ever really um, say uh, things in praise of Marx. But I do think um, this latest crisis and thinking about it have led me to that conclusion. Now, um, I think there are other things. The third, you know, there's technology. Where do you fit in technology? You get stru structures of change in the economy that don't seem to be guided either by ideas or power structures. Um, but I'm, and, and, and you know, this is a, the world of Schumpeter. Um, I'm uh, resistant to the idea that technology is an exogenous a force. I think human beings create technology and we get the technology we want. Uh, it obviously must be true at some abstract level. Technology doesn't create itself. Machines don't create themselves. It's human beings who do. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us today? Um, what are the prospects of, of a change in our ideas as a result of what's happened in the last uh, five or six years? Well, neoliberalism as theory has been heavily damaged by events, which, according to the neoliberal theorists, shouldn't have happened. These events were not in the script. They weren't written into the DNA of the shirts that were hanging in the neoliberal cupboard. You know, I'm sorry, my metaphors are not entirely accurate. But anyway, I th so, so you, you, you have to start questioning then, what, what, what really, um, what, really um, uh, what did they miss out? And um, I think, you know, Mark, um, you know, on, on the question of financial uh, liberalization, 
You've recommended a book. I recommend the, the report, 2009 report, of the Financial Services Authority, which actually does detail the ways in which financial uh, deregulation um, uh, contributed uh, to the crisis, written with a foreword by the chairman of the Financial Services Authority. Financial efficient market theory um, suggested very light-touch regulation of the banking system because it suggested that, uh, broadly speaking, um, they always correctly valued the risks they were running. And that was also something Alan Greenspan said after, after the event. He said, we just, we just thought that these risks were being correctly priced by, by the banks. Yeah? Well, there's a theory behind that. It's not, it's not and, 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 it, and it was, that theory was reflected in the, in the deregulation. So um, there was a bit of a revival of Keynesianism in 2008, 2009, but it soon faded away. So what we're left with, um, neoliberal structure in economics is very, very strong. It is all, it's mainstream. The attacks on it have been fringe. Um, and, um, uh, and, and it's hardwired into, into, the, into the brains of all um, um, e economists. That is efficient markets. Markets, markets are good. State, state is bad. Um, and you know there are exceptions. And so, but that is hardwired and it's very hard to break. And I don't, know, I don't know, short of abolishing economics and starting again, you're ever going to do it. But still, um, you know, you can make some progress. And, and the second thing is that the structure of the economy is the same. The structure of power hasn't changed. So therefore, where is, where is the, the new movement to come from? I'm not saying that it's got to be a revival of Keynesianism. I'm not saying that we can have socialism in its old form. But I am claiming that neoliberalism has been a very, very powerful influence on what's happened, and it's still, the, it's still the ideology in power. And I think that's what all of you who are young have to think, how are we going to sort of you know, develop from this situation we're now in? Thanks. All right. Thanks, Robert. I'm tempted to say welcome to the London School of Political Science um, as we drop economics. I, I'm, I'm going to ask Daniel to behave like the Duracell bunny and respond for two or three minutes because we do want to open it up to question and answers, then there's going to be a book signing later on, and I'll advertise the format of that later. Daniel. Uh, thank you, Stuart. I, I will just respond to a couple of points Mark made. Um, I think Robert's just ably uh, articulated the enduring influence of neoliberal thinking, um, and I think the idea that it's faith-based history is only true if you're on a, you know, taking a particular perspective to the politics of it. Because it's quite clear that neoliberalism hasn't triumphed in every area or every respect, thank God. But it has had significant, made significant inroads into political culture, into policies, uh, particularly actually uh, around trade unions, as Robert mentioned, or indeed privatisation, as well as... Um, uh, the question about how much or how little financial deregulation there has been. 
Um, and light touch regulation was a feature of, of, of governments of both left and conservative persuasions on both sides of the Atlantic from the late 70s to uh, the 2008 crisis. Um, and the responses to the 2008 crisis are still hemmed in to, to a large degree by the type of mentality that, again, Robert just mentioned. So um, it may be that Mark wants there to have been more uh, neoliberal influence, but I think we can probably all agree that there's been some and a significant amount enough that uh, it, it justifies the emphasis that it's given. Um, of course, I accept we disagree politically about the conclusions uh, of, that, uh, of what, what one can draw from that influence. Um, it, on the question of morality, I think it's. Um, I absolutely agree with Mark. Of course, Hayek dealt with morality uh, in his later works, and he dealt with morality at more or less the time that he withdrew uh, from the economics debates that he was involved in earlier on in his career. Um, so I, I apologise if there's a sort of confusion there, but I, I absolutely accept that Hayek de- deals with, mono- with morality. It's just that those aspects of his thought were, of course, less important to the economic and political uh, breakthroughs that were made in the 60s and 70s on the back of some of his earlier and his, his economic ideas. Um, in terms of Thatcher, I think absolutely the case was made for Victorian values as well as uh, over a, a type of morality of, of individual initiative and uh, self-starting almost. Um, and that was made at the same time as an argument for markets uh, or, or increased privatisation, uh, trade union reform and all of the other things that we associate with Thatcherism. The compatibility of those two dimensions of Thatcherism is a totally separate question. And I wouldn't say that the argument was made from a market perspective uh, about morality. It was just that there was a competing concern, as it were, of the grocer's daughter for of uh, a, a Victorian morality that she wanted to, to safeguard and promote. Um, and, of course, a lot of the market-based policies that she p- promotes and pursued um, were, ca- were ran, in my view, ran counter to that, that other goal uh, of, of, of a particular kind of morality. Um, I, just on the financial deregulation point, I mean, I think it's un- it is undoubtedly true that there was financial deregulation, perhaps, again, not as much as um, Mark might have wanted, but there was certainly a lot, and it wasn't just Glass-Steagall. In Britain, it was obviously pursued and continued under Brown. So um, I think I'll leave. Let's try and have some questions. Yes, thanks, Daniel, for keeping it concise. I think what we'll try and do now is, I think we'll we'll take questions one by one, because I imagine that you'll want all three people to respond. We'll probably have time for four or five. You can keep your questions concise and then the respondents also if they could be concise um, take that gentleman there with a large hand up um, uh, microphone will come to you um, or a normal sized hand even um, say who you are and ask your question please. Uh, I'm Ramin, member of the public if we consider monetarism as one of the main pillars of neoliberal economic policy we know that Hayek was against monetarism then how we can consider Hayek as a neoliberal? Do you want more questions or do you want to, to let's, answer them one Let's take them in a take bunch. Two or three. Right at the front here. Um, Just wait, Tim, until the mic comes to you. Not that I know who you are. 
I'm, I'm Tim. I, I'm a, a, a proud graduate of the London School of Economics, and my question was about the LSE. Why was the LSE so central in this story? Were we just lucky that Robbins invited... Um, help me out here. Robbins invited uh, Hayek, and then Hayek invited Popper, or, or was it something special? And, and could we look to universities to continue to do that going forward, or is it now all, all about think tanks like the Mont Pelerin Society that you mentioned? Perhaps one from upstairs, if there is one. Right at the back there is a gentleman. Thanks. Hi, I'm from the U.S. I come from a political background in the British Parliament. Uh, after having done an internship there, my, my question for you is how do we uh, get uh, politicians, whether in the U.K. or uh, members of the European Parliament, in order to uh, use more than just rhetoric and create uh, basically a, um, a shared motivation to fix these problems through actions rather than just through words? Thank you. Daniel? We'll take another round in a moment. Daniel? Uh, I mean, on the European point, I think that there's an opportunity out there for someone, whether it be the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats, perhaps, um, to articulate a, a European reform agenda um, rather than a uh, sort of silence that hopes to capitalise on the Eurosceptic problems of the Tory party in terms of uh, how that... Um, debate will emerge, it's very difficult to see at the moment, but I hope someone will take some leadership on it. Um, in terms of the LSE's importance, I think it was just uh, crucial in the, at that moment in the 1930s. There, were, there was Lionel Robbins, but there was also Ed, uh, Edwin Cannon um, and a few others uh, at the time. Um, and it became a locus of, of, of Hayekian, or not I mean, Hayek was there, obviously, and he, he became identified with a particular position contra Keynes, obviously. He was based in Cambridge. So that institutional dynamic was important then. Um, whether it's think tanks now, I mean, it certainly has been think tanks at various points, um, and think tanks emerge, really, in the 20th century as very important. Um, and, but, I mean, you know, I don't know if it's one or the other. It could be, it could be both. Um, Monetarism, Hayek, of course there's a, there are big differences, as I'm sure Mark could tell you more about than I could, than I could between an Austrian-type approach and a Chicago-type approach. But I think in, in the terms of political breakthroughs, um, the, the similarities outweigh the differences in terms of how the politician, in terms of how politicians took on the ideas in the 70s. But I think Friedman was crucial in terms of monetarism rather than Hayek. Hayek was very important as a policy activist, actually, and in sort of binding together a lot of the think tanks and the various uh, neoliberal or classical liberal uh, organisations on both sides of the Atlantic. So he was crucial from a more sort of background position, whereas Friedman uh, was important for monetarist policy uh, particularly. And just to answer the point I think that Robert and Mark both made earlier, I think it's very interesting to see how these imperfect applications of economic theories emerge in political contexts. It's, it's obviously true that they are not perfect applications of particular economic theories and that they come later, and that was Hayek's point in his Intellectuals and Socialism uh, article in the late 40s. So. Mark, do you want to... Uh, yeah, just quickly, on the monetarism point, I think that's a very good point. 
Um, Hayek was no monetarist, at least not in the sense of believing in central monetary uh, targeting in the way that Milton Friedman did. So I think that's an excellent point. Uh, and it shows the need for actually having some recognition of the nuance in these areas between different thinkers and not just translating a kind of amorphous set of ideas and claiming that politicians then adopted them. I'm not saying Daniel is doing that as such, but I think there needs to be more of that nuance in this kind of argument. And I'd, I'd make that point also to, to Robert. You know, he, he makes the point that um, the efficient markets thesis underlies neoliberalism or the free market view. It doesn't. Uh, Hayek, I didn't, I didn't Hayek, say that. Didn't well, you did that. actually say that. You did actually say that. No, I said you it, did. I, 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 you I said, said it clearly. underlied financial deregulation. Um, but okay, so if we're, that, if we're talking, okay, well, if, if that's what you said, if that's what you said, if we're talking about the people who are the subjects of Daniel's book, you won't find anywhere in Hayek's writings any claim that's remotely claims that markets are efficient, let alone perfectly efficient. The whole point about the Hayekian worldview is that inefficiency is inevitable in a world where the human mind is limited, where people are highly imperfect, and all we can do is have institutions that muddle through. That doesn't sound anything like a theory of perfect efficiency. So again, before we start saying what the influence of these ideas has been in political terms, we've actually got to locate properly where those ideas are coming from. To give another example of that, um, just three or four days ago, James Buchanan, who was the founder of public choice theory, uh, died at the age of 93. Now, he's largely responsible for developing the theory of, of government failure as a counter to mainstream neoclassical theories of market failure. But if you look at any mainstream uh, textbook that you get on, on economic theory that university students will look at, Buchanan is almost completely ignored. You might get half a paragraph here and there mentioning that there is government failure as well as market failure. But the emphasis of most mainstream neoclassical economic theory is very much on market failure analysis, a la Joseph Stiglitz, and not on government failure analysis, as in uh, James Buchanan. Let, yeah. um, let me give you a little anecdote from the horse's mouth. I know Joe Stiglitz quite well, and... Um, I was having dinner with him about a year ago, and I said, look, all these events must have vindicated you, you know, very much. He teaches at Columbia University. And um, you mean they must have vindicated you, and you must get crowds of students. And he said, I'm not allowed to teach students. Um, um, I, 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 all, you know, they don't, they don't uh, channel students to my courses. And so I feel very isolated. And... Um, I think, I think you've got to sort of um, take that into account. I mean, here's a Nobel Prize winner, and, um, and, and the professors at his, in his faculty are, are actually um, deterring students from taking his courses on the grounds that he is too radical. Um, now, to answer the questions, of course, monetarism, yeah, monetarism and, and monetarism isn't Hayekism, sure, but they come together, actually, on, 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 on the idea that the state needs to be shrunk. Um, and, and so they can, form a, they can form an alliance on that. And um, so that's, those are two of the streams that feed into neoliberalism. Why was the LSE so favored um, with, uh, with um, uh, e economic thought? Well, you, you could say it was favored with it. That would be one. <laughs> <laughs> one interpretation. Um, Lionel Robbins, actually, he, he said, you know, Opposing Keynes in the 1930s was the greatest mist intellectual mistake of my life. Yeah, okay. Um, then, 
and then as to as to um, uh, uh, you know having actions rather than rhetoric, I completely agree. You've just but one's got to think. One's got to think this thing through. These are very very complex issues. Good. I think I'll recommend to our new director that we could hire Joe Stiglitz if he's unhappy at Columbia. Uh, <laughs> well, I think we've got time for three more questions. Well, I suspect there's many more. We'll start at the top. Um, yes, there's somebody here, uh, right at the middle of the front. Andrew Ketquick, um, member of the public. Did... Uh, deregulation in 1986 to permit retail banks to join and supply finance to investment banks have any impact on the credit crunch? Probably. Quick. Go down here and then I think we'll... Yes. Um, okay. Olivier from King's College. I've got two quick comments uh, for Mark especially. One, uh, yes, you're right to point out that deregulation is, is, is not what's happened in the 80s and 90s, it's, it would be more correct to call it regulatory reform. But then once you make that slight change in the, in the term, you say, okay, it's a bit sophisticated to say, well, there is excessive regulation has led to the crisis because there were a lot of regulatory reforms actually implementing neoliberal agenda. So it's not because it's regulation that means that you know, there is more state or there is more active role for state and state authorities. And the second re related uh, comment, has to do with, I think you're also right, to, uh, Mark, to point out that uh, it's misleading to assume that neoliberal politics lead to uh, lower or weaker states, uh, the withdrawal of the state. If you look at you know, Reagan years and Bush years, the role of the state has actually increased. But then it would be misleading to take that as the proof that neoliberal reforms are not very widespread because the kind of state... Uh, policies that you have in place are very peculiar. And you, know, you could actually explain that paradox, you know, a bigger role for the state in times of neoliberal politics uh, in two ways. You can say, okay, the, the, that's the Polanyi argument. You can say, you know, there is more state because of the uh, crisis that neoliberal politics brings in and there is a higher social demand for protection. And the, the other thing would be, you know, there is more state simply because neoliberal politics are contradict. There is a big contradiction there. You know, and markets are not self-sustaining. Yes, there's a gentleman right there. I think this probably will have to be our last question. I know there are other people that would like to ask questions. Professor Skudelsky um, suggests to students here that they attempt to find a way between uh, neoliberal politics and perhaps the old socialism. Can he give some suggestions to the students here? Um, there aren't many political philosophers amongst politicians I these days. I can't days. see the questioner. Hey, he's uh, up there. Ah. <laughs> I think if you can give some guidance to students about steering a course between neoliberalism and... I missed the end of it. I thought it was socialism. Socialism. Yes. There's three questions for you, gentlemen. Who wants to start? Mark? Um, I've, forgot, I've forgotten the last one, actually, because we were trying to find... The I think it's offering advice to students yeah. about steering a course between neoliberalism and socialism. Yeah, OK. Um, Okay, the first question was about uh, did deregulation lead to changing the structure of banks and did that cause the, the financial crisis? Um, is there any evidence for that? I, I don't think there is any convincing evidence for that, actually. I really don't. Uh, I mean, it's touted very much in the media. It's a, a kind of business commentator's view. But if you're actually looking for detailed analyses 
of the way the financial crisis unfolded. There are many more convincing explanations uh, than the one that you've, you've hinted at in that particular question. So my view is that, at the very least, you'd have to say that the jury is out um, on that question. Um, on the role of the state, um, I absolutely accept. One argument could be that you get a rise in the need, say, for social expenditures um, when you have so-called neoliberal policies introduced. Um, I can see that as a coherent argument. Um, I'm not sure it's a necessary implication of that, but I can see that as a coherent argument. If we're talking about regulation, though, um, the point I was simply making is that people talk an awful lot claiming that deregulation has happened, but if you look at the empirical evidence, it is not obvious that that is the case. And it's also not obvious that the regulatory reforms which have taken place have been inspired by neoliberal ideas. Certainly, if you look at the regulatory reforms which are taking place now, they are anything but neoliberal. And I would suggest that even reforms like uh, the 1986 Big Bang in the UK were not inspired by neoliberal ideas either. You have to look at what people in regulatory agencies, what universities have they been to, what textbooks have they been reading. And an awful lot of them hadn't been reading, in my view, um, Hayek and Buchanan. Um, they'd been reading mainstream neoclassical market failure theory, which says that these markets have got to be regulated heavily because of asymmetric information problems and a whole catalogue of other market failures that you'll get documented in any mainstream econ textbook. If you're talking about the final question about is there a middle way uh, in these uh, debates, um, I'm not unsympathetic. You might be surprised to, to learn, given what I've said so far. Um, I'm not unsympathetic to middle way thinking. Um, my own view is, and this goes back to the, the previous question that I tried to answer, that even though philosophically I'm not totally uh, comfortable with it, um, I would like to see as a middle way option the idea of income redistribution to deal with problems of poverty combined with an open market economy which emphasizes the kind of things that the neoliberals talk about. Philosophically, I'm not personally um, convinced by that argument, but it seems to me it's a reasonable sort of compromise instead of thinking you can come up with some kind of compromise between central planning and um, a market system. Yeah. Um, I only really want to um, answer one of them. Uh, <laughs> If you, if you, of course, are, if you, if you privatise a whole lot of uh, public utilities that were once under 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 state control, you increase regulation. Of course, you do, because you have to then take um, account of um, the way such utilities, with heavily concentrated ownership, would operate in a market system, and of course, you run into problems of monopoly oligopoly very, very quickly. So you increase regulation. So paradoxically, acts of privatization, which in, on one hand shrink the state, also increase the role of regulation. And so I think that, that process is going on the whole time. But it's, the, it's the, the idea behind it, which is eventually to get the state out of things, which, are, which, which is the dominant one. And, you know, I think you're much too keen on... Um, or oh, not too keen. I, I, I say you, you're not keen enough on t taking account of the climate of ideas. I mean, you know, it's not that Thatcher studied um, land use and town planning in great detail like you did. Um, uh, that she, she, she had a general ideas of, you know, the, don't buck the markets, get the state out of things, 
some moral values. And it's at that level in, 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 the, in the climate of ideas that, that, that I think um, um, uh, these things happen. And I will answer one. Steering course between neoliberalism and socialism. No, I don't think, I don't think, I don't think the third way is right. I mean, this was Tony Blair's great idea. Uh, because the trouble was that one bit of the third way, the second way, was no longer there. So you can't have a third way. Uh, <laughs> you've got to have something else. Daniel, I'll give you the last word. Um, yeah, I mean, I think on, on the tenacity, you know, why, why neoliberalism didn't have more impact, uh, it's partly because of the tenacity of... Uh, the universal welfare state. I mean, the health service is something very difficult to um, challenge because everyone benefits from it and everyone uses it and everyone, for the most part, has a good experience of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, that is a, a clear and similarly uh, universal benefit. I mean, we do see some of that perhaps being reordered now and we'll see, see how far it goes. Um, in terms of the financial crisis, I do think uh, it probably do fall down on the on the market failure rather than government failure side of the fence. But um, again, you know there are competing explanations, and, and it's and it's quite early um, to know the definitive answer. And I'm sure that there were government failures, and a failure of regulation is by definition a government failure um, as well. So. Um, and then finally, I think in terms of, of, of the theme that we've been thinking about, about uh, the way in which ideas matter and how they translate into politics, um, I mean, it's very interesting, I think, that uh, in the example of the post-war German economy, you do get Ludwig Erhardt actually being someone who was thinking some of these ideas at that time and was a member of the Montpellerin Society and then he introduces currency reform and he introduces, uh, helps to create the social market economy in the 50s. So there you've got a sort of uh, a more direct uh, route from, from ideas to politics. Thank you and thanks everybody for coming out tonight. Just before you file out, if I could just very quickly make three points. First of all, if you would like to buy a copy of Daniel's book, they're outside. If you purchase them there and then bring them up afterwards to the table at the front, Daniel will be very happy to sign them. Secondly, thanks to LSE Events and our stewards. I think we do have the best public events program anywhere in the world right now. And pleased to uh, acknowledge the role of LSE Events in putting them on. But lastly, I just invite you all to say thank you in the traditional way to our speakers, Daniel, Mark, and Robert. Thank you. Thank you.